Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. Um, well, good afternoon. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and I would like to thank Valerie and Emma and the entire team here at the Museum at FIT for inviting me to participate in this wonderful symposium. The plus side of speaking later in the day is that many of the wonderful ideas have already been put in the room. The bad side is I want to rewrite everything um, in light of what I've heard. So I need to keep to time. I'm just going to make a couple of little catch-up interjections. Um, and also, I have stripped out most of the uh, scholarly referencing and name-checking just to save time. Uh, a lot of the people whose work I have learned so much from are with us here in the room today. Um, and for any of you who are researching in this area and want any more of that apparatus, then I'll be happy to do that later. Um, oh my. The management of the body is of significance for many religions, including contemporary Christianity. We might think about religions with distinctive rules regarding the feeding of the body, such as kosher and halal food, or the many rituals for cleansing or baptizing the body. Distinctions between religions... Oh, I forgot my opening thing. Sorry, I'd scribbled it at the top. I'm going to do it. So... I wanted to start by saying, whilst popular understandings of prevailing Protestant Christian religious cultures might foreground a hierarchical split between the mind and the body in religious doctrine and expression, the management of the body is of significance for many religions, including contemporary Christianity. It makes sense now. So we could think about feeding or washing the body we could think about distinctions between religions and also about how these distinctions between religions are matched by blending between religious traditions, typical of what sociologists call everyday or daily religion. As Meredith Maguire argues, this approach allows us to understand that how people live their daily spiritual and religious beliefs may be characterized by syncretic mixing between religions and by apparent inconsistency. So for example, Orthodox Jews may happily sign up for yoga classes without thinking that they are joining another religion. Yet in India, Hindu nationalists under Modi might want yoga re-sacralized as Hindu religious practice and at the same time, in some Christian schools in North America, schools won't permit yoga on the premises because it's a foreign and alien religion. As Nancy Ammerman explains, these boundary disputes should be regarded not as the policing of already firm distinctions between discrete institutional religious institutions, but rather as exercises in moral boundary making. They create boundaries. And all the while, Lululemon sells yoga pants. <laughs> Using the frame of daily religion also, therefore, allows us to focus on the blending between the sacred and the profane and between the religious and the commercial. While 27% of Americans say that they are spiritual, not religious, it becomes clear that the secularization thesis did not come to pass. 
It has not been the case that modernity and industrialization brought about the end of religion as an organizing principle in personal ethics or in state and community life. In discussions about the revisibilization of religion in a post-secular society, I'm interested in how consumer cultures provision and shape the diverse ways in which people now elect to craft their personal spiritual or religious practices. When it comes to the embodied expression of religious cultures, modest fashion, commerce, and commentary has played a key role in validating and arbitrating definitions of religious, spiritual, and ethno-religious authenticity. For women who see themselves as part of a cross-faith modest fashion movement, an ideal of respecting individual women's choices about how, when, and if the body should be covered is paramount, although it is often difficult to maintain. So today, I'm going to focus on the ethics of inclusivity and how they are strained by two perceived distinctions in embodiment. I'm looking at the body marked by ethnicity and the body marked by size. And today, I'm going to focus on Muslim modest fashion, but related debates can also be found in other religious and spiritual contexts. Modest commodities don't simply cover an already pious self. For some Muslim women, as Sabah Mahmood discusses, and she's writing about the early piety movements in Egypt in the beginning of the global Islamic revival in the mid-20th century, she says the daily act of dressing the body in a modest dress and a headscarf or hijab helps cultivate a pious disposition. This is an important reminder of the active role of garments, their acquisition and their styling in the creation of identity and social place. Today, dress and dressing also function to form the social and political self. We might think of Muslim women who wear the hijab to provide a social alibi to parents or elders and of those who wear the hijab to reclaim a sign of stigma, particularly after 9-11. And I note that Munira Ahmed, whose image you see here, uh, repurposed in the famous poster by Shepard Ferry in his We the People series, is not herself a hijab wearer. Canadian brand Nurka on the right there produce what they call expressive scarves, which can be worn on the head or as an accessory, and women and men can mark themselves as Muslim with a Muslim t-shirt. Women use social media to show support across faith and across secular and faith divides for women's rights to freedom of religious expression. Now, at root is a commitment to inclusivity and to multiple forms of modest presentation. And underwriting this is an awareness that styles of religious and religio-ethnic presentation change, including covering, stop covering, and sometimes covering. This is um, Winnie Detwa, the blogger, uh, Nadia Azmi, who blogged, she was the turban queen when she was wearing her hijab, her turban, and who continued blogging when she stopped. Muslim women who cover and who don't cover criticize the tendency to regard hijab as the litmus test of female piety, as if women who don't cover are automatically not pious. Many would argue that behavior, not clothing, should be the true indicator of moral and religious identity and integrity. Unsurprisingly, racialized norms of beauty play out in the modest fashion sector. Islam, of course, is not an ethnicity. 
but in the US as elsewhere in the West, mosques have often developed as mono-ethnic, taking cultural norms as religious conventions. For the young and youngish women that constitute the main core of the new Muslim modest fashionistas, the multi-ethnic nature of the Ummah, the imagined community of all Muslims globally, is very important. Civil liberties and feminist approaches frame religious rights as human rights. An ideal of cross-ethnic religious connectivity among pioneering brands and journalists was often signaled by using models of visible ethnic diversity, and I'm showing Muslim girl here. More recent brands, this is Norka again, provide products to suit varied skin tones, such as their hijab range, their basic colors. Not surprisingly, given the market stats for Muslim modest consumers, Rihanna's Fenty campaign featured now famous Muslim hijabi model Halima Aden. Fenty's USP, as you'll know, is producing products for an inclusive spectrum of skin colors. And here, the body of the Somali-American refugee, Aden, doubles down on racial, religious, and social inclusion in the brand's messaging. Not long ago, mainstream brands were aversive to being publicly associated with Muslims. Magazines couldn't get adverts or pull product for editorial shoots. Bloggers couldn't get promotions or sponsorship. Now, as fashion and cosmetic industries begin to mainstream diversity, attachment to visible religious distinction becomes an asset. With the global Muslim spend on all apparel estimated at 2,213 billion US dollars by 2021, it's not surprising that brands want to reach out to a valuable consumer segment. And I was thinking when Lauren was talking about the size of the plus size market, and Julia and I, who's speaking next, were talking about the older consumer, to some extent when you make the market case, the business case, then the brands listen. Clearly some brands, feel able to message this in their campaigns without fear of alienating other consumers. It may even be an asset in appealing to non-Muslim consumers who want to be associated with brands who appear woke to religious as well as racial inclusivity. But the body under the clothes means that not all bodies can be as easily coded as modest when normative visualities prevail. Margari Aziza in 2015 described how racial norms about good hair are welded onto popular conviction about good and bad hijab to position women with natural Afro hair as morally inadequate. And this picture is of her um, wearing her hijab at the annual convention of the Islamic Society of North America, ISNA. She writes, as Muslims, our natural hair exposes us to being asked, what do you have under your scarf? One time too many. The question is then followed with reminders about the hadith that describes women whose, quote, heads swear like camel humps, end quote, who will reside in hell. The hadiths, the sayings attributed to the prophet, uh, this is an often used hadith which many um, feminists and scholars would say is of weaker authority than some others, but it's having a real uh, second life and often appears on social media in um, criticisms. And here's just one illustration that I picked up off the, off the internet. Um, she goes on to say, several black Muslim women have told similar stories about being told something is wrong with them because of the shape of their hijab. 
In this instance, my point is that the normative body against which Aziza and her hair is found wanting is not necessarily the tall, slim, Caucasian body of the Western fashion imaginary. Though mainstream fashion norms are unavoidably part of the framing for Muslim dressing in the West, norms of hijab beauty are also informed by the histories of cultural ascendancy that have privileged Arab cultures as originating closer to the land of the Prophet. In this instance, good hair for hijab styling may be hair closest to European style tresses, but it is also to include Arab hair and some forms of Asian hair as well as Caucasian. As Aziza recounts, quote, the politics of hair even extends to the Middle East and North Africa. When I lived in Kuwait and Egypt, rocking an afro was like an act of resistance. She goes on to say that natural hair and the expertise in caring for it remains a political act, even, I would say, as the styling comes in and out of fashion. The celebrity cult of the Kardashians, who we saw earlier, may have brought elements of the black body, notably the butt, into vogue. But for those not living in the rarefied realm of superstardom, the fashionability of certain types of physiognomy does not save the same body parts from future stigma. Charlie Brinkhurst Cuff, writing last year in the British newspaper The Guardian, says, quote, that whilst my body shape may be in fashion now, I do worry that it will be a struggle to remember how to love my body as the traits associated with blackness fall from grace. Fashion-led social media have played a key role in visibilizing the black Muslim body. Digital campaigns such as hashtag Blackout Eid showed black Muslim women, men, children in seasonal finery. Social media was utilized to create an assertive gallery of contemporary African-American dressed identity, challenging the tendency to take Arab or Asian cultural forms as normative of all Islam. As New York Muslim American blogger and activist Najma Sharif pointed out, when within hours of the hashtag launching, launching, she says, hashtag Blackout Eid was trending everywhere from Abuja to Seattle, Toronto, London, and Minneapolis. Black Muslims flooded the Twitter sphere with photos in their most swagged out beautiful outfits, showing the world that black is indeed beautiful. Black powers body positive strategies in the slogan Black is Beautiful manifest in new transnational visualities that are created and circulated by the speed of digital social media and, of course, the increased reach of internet infrastructure. In contrast, one African-American Muslim Instagrammer found that social media platforms can also silence and suppress the curvy black body. Having achieved major shopping success by finding a pair of jeans that fitted at the waist and at the hips, blogger Miski Muse found that her celebratory post was taken down by Instagram after a person unknown apparently flagged it as inappropriate. It's evident that modest dressers struggle to uphold a non-judgmental ideal in the face of real differences of opinion. But as Teen Vogue noted in their commentary on this incident, Bodies are judged through a racialized lens. Teen Vogue's um, consider, they say at Teen Vogue, our culture's complicated history of hypersexualizing black female bodies, and you can understand just what an infuriating position Miski occupies. 
She couldn't identify the person behind the original complaint, and Miski Muse contextualizes the algorithmic verdict in relation to, quote, centuries of male policing of women's bodies. She goes on to say, I don't believe in comparing myself to other women because they're not my competition. But the harsh reality is that it's easier to be a slimmer hijabi wearing this same outfit. Bay Area blogger Minara El-Rahman makes a similar link between ethnicity and size in terms of visible diversity and market offer. In her blog, Hijabi Life, she reposted comments that only one of the social media influencers who was flown into Dubai for Modest Fashion Week in December 2017 appeared to be black. She writes, so this is Manara El-Rahman on Hijabi Life. She writes, the struggle for diversity in the Muslim fashion world is very real. It seems that the ideal Muslim fashion blogger is thin, light-skinned, and very much like an actual fashion blogger with a hijab on top of her head. While these bloggers work very hard to create beautiful content, there are so many more of us who attempt to shed light on the fact that Muslims are a billion-plus deep population with so many more faces and bodies. Her post complicates the presumption that the growing power of digital content producers as the new influencers of fashion will necessarily democratize the fashion establishment. And as Joe already pointed out this morning, piece in the press recently, pointing out that the press, when they're remediating street style from the fashion weeks, inevitably choose thin white women. The visual self-imaging of first-rung Instagram stars like Susie Lau, Brian Bai, and Karen Blanchard has brought some visible ethnic diversity to the fashion media. So too is religious diversity in fashion marketing, now seen in the Muslim-marked bodies of Halima Aden, and before that in H&M, where um, they made a step, well, being in this video for H&M made a star of London Mus Londoner Maria Idrissi. So too is religious cultural identity now visibilized in bodies not marked as Muslim by dress and comportment, such as the supermodel Hadid sisters who have self-identified as Muslim, Palestinian, migrant, and refugee. But for women who want clothing that enables the cultivation and expression of Muslim identities, pious and also cultural and political, Al-Rahman's lament on hijabi life makes clear that limits in representation match up to limits in the market offer. She says, for me, it's always been a struggle to find modest clothing that will actually fit and flatter a curvy body type. Admit it, how many of you even follow a plus size or curvy modest fashion blogger? And we might think, of course, also of Vernon Lee, who I haven't put up for time today. Najma Sharif argues that white supremacy, quote, is why black Muslim women aren't as visible as Arab and white Muslim women. She goes on also to criticize those one Ummah clothing brands who promote an ideal of inclusion among the worldwide community of Muslim believers. For her, the legacy of racialized beauty norms excludes the characteristics of the black female body. She says, I learned very early that no matter what I wear, I can't achieve this idea of modesty. My body is inherently immodest. The bigger, darker, and curvier a black Muslim woman is, the more and more difficult it becomes for her to be considered modest. Even in hijab, white femininity is the apex of modesty. 
our black bodies are rendered immodest, hypersexual and invisible and hypervisible simultaneously. So what is available on the market? At a moment when both the plus size and Muslim fashion markets are experiencing expansion, diversification and segmentation, I'm going to close with a few examples and some cautions for the route forward. As the Muslim modest niche sector expands, a few brands are now positioning themselves at the intersection between Muslim modesty and plus size inclusivity. Launched in 2013, Styled by Zubeda carries all lines in sizes 10 to 24. Founder and designer Zubeda Abdul Hakim told Nylon magazine, quote, being on the large side is so taboo in the Muslim fashion industry. Few carry sizes over bigger than XL, and those that do don't design those pieces to be proportionate for a curvy woman's body. With curve fast emerging as a preferred term for plus size positivity, their website proclaims, we believe that style has no size and curvy girls need love too. Emerging from the Afro-American style conventions of the Nation of Islam in 1981, Alnisa Designs is one of the longest running American modest fashion brands. Selected by the Dubai-based Islamic Fashion and Design Council to show at their first European event in Torino, Italy last year, the company's, we're not there. There we go. The company's modern take on the nation's Black Pride aesthetics is available custom-made to all sizes. Designer Carmen Mohammed and her team embody the uniform dress codes of the nation to press-worthy effect, while showing individuated riffs on a theme for broader catwalk appeal, which is what you're seeing at the top left. The ethos of respecting women and their bodies extends to making modesty and comfort possible for those who are not religious adherents. Larger women from any background do the maths and work out that designers of modest fashion will likely be more sensitive to women's body issues. American Muslim designer Nazinga Knight, who will be familiar to many of you as the first hijabi on Project Runway in 2014, reflected that, quote, plus-size women are invested in the idea of being more modestly covered generally. She clarifies that this is not necessarily for reasons of religion, but because, quote, of a certain body consciousness that I think plus-size women end up having that I'm sure society also encourages or puts on them. Making religion newly visible in the public sphere, modest fashion commerce and social commentary are important sites for the staging of boundary disputes about what counts as appropriate religious body management. Bound up in the practice of religion in the everyday, modest fashion commodities may also arbitrate resolutions to those dilemmas. I'm serving as consulting curator for the upcoming exhibition, Contemporary Muslim Fashions, at the De Young Museum in San Francisco, for which we've thought long and hard about how to stage the physique of Muslim fashion. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts and comments today. Thank you. <laughs>